Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Exodus chapter 20. We've been in a series, if you're just joining us this morning, we've been in a series on the Ten Commandments, the law of God. And uh, we've, we've done several introductory sermons just to understand how we as Christians should think about the law, and some of that's going to pl- come into play this morning. Um, and, and then we've gone through the first six commandment, uh, commandments, and so this morning we're on the seventh commandment, Exodus chapter 20 and verse number 14. Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. As, as we start here, I, I just want to begin this morning by, by answering the question, why, why would we talk about something like this? Uh, you know, it can be sometimes uncomfortable or awkward, um, but the reality is it's in Scripture, right? It's in the Word of God. God has spoken to matters of sexuality, and because God has spoken clearly, we as God's people who are seeking to be faithful to Him and obedient to Him, we need to hear what He has to say on this matter. And you might think, though, and I've heard this even said, why does, does God really care who I sleep with? Does God really care about this? Why, why do Christians make such a big deal about it? Well, we've already said we, we make a big deal about it because it is in the Bible, but, but why does God care about sex? One, one thing that we need to understand is that, that really sexuality isn't the most important thing about us. It isn't everything, right? But if you stop and think about it, uh, we as Christians are not really the ones who have made sexuality into such uh, sort of an end-all, be-all. If you're listening to anything at all in our culture today, uh, it's telling you that your sexuality really is part of your, is part of your identity, an unchangeable part of your identity. It, it defines who you are. And we would say, as Christians, uh, we do see the importance of sexuality, but it isn't the most important thing about us. And, and so in some ways, if someone were to say, why are we making such a big deal about this? I would say, we're not the ones making a big deal about it. It's the culture around us that has made uh, this such an important and primary issue in our identity. We do recognize that it is something created by God. He has regula- regulated it, and it is important to us, but it isn't ultimate. It isn't primary. So we just want to think this morning about this commandment. It's very basic, very plain, and, and simple And I just want to say several things about this command. The first thing that we need to recognize is that this command is good. The command not to commit adultery is good. It's a good thing, and it's a good thing because it protects God's good design. Now, as we come to the commandment, uh, we've got to recognize again that our thinking as Christians is going to be very much antithetical to the world around us because the world around us says that sort of any restriction in the area of sexual expression is an inherently bad thing. Why would you restrain yourself? Why, why would you limit? If you have an urge or you have some sort of desire, uh, that's not good to restrain it. You should give expression to it. Again, it's part of your identity, and you don't want to rep- repress who you are. In fact, there are people in our culture that, that would say even that if you repress that sexual urge, it can actually be a harmful thing. So many people, while this command would say that adultery and sexual sin is evil, there are people in our culture who would really look at a command like this, a prohibition like this, and say that that command 
is evil. So again, we've just got to recognize right at the gate, right out of the gate, that we are coming at this from a very different perspective. The reality is this commandment and the restriction that it places upon human sexuality is actually a good thing because it protects something that is good. You see, God has created something good and beautiful, sexuality and, and marriage, uh, where that is to be expressed. And adultery and, and other forms of sexual sin distorts that good design. And what it actually does ultimately is it works to subvert and, and destroy the good design of God in marriage. I've given this illustration before, uh, but I think it is a fitting one. If I had a brand new sports car, and I said, Here, here's the keys to this. Here, here's a, a, a brand new, whatever you want to think, your favorite sports car, red. I mean, just souped up, super nice. And, and I tell you now, there's, there's one restriction on this. I'm, I'm going to let you drive it, but, but make sure you stay on the road. Don't take this off road. Don't, I, I don't think you would get the idea, but if for some reason you decide that you'd like to go off on some trails or something, this is not the vehicle to do it. So if you're going to drive it, you need to keep it on the road. Now, now, why does that make sense? It makes sense because a sports car is never designed to go off-road. It's designed to be driven and on the road, and on the road you can enjoy and have the full experience of, of what it is designed to do. But the moment you start to take it off-roading, you would begin to destroy this very awesome car. And so it is with marriage and sexuality. God has created something, and sex is God's creation. Marriage is God's good creation. God has created something very good and something very beautiful, and he has, he has put a restriction on it in order to protect what he created. When we subvert the design of God, when we seek to take sexuality or, or marriage and, and use them in different ways than God had intended or designed, we end up subverting and even destroying God's good design. Adultery and is not sin simply because God capriciously decided to keep us from having too much fun. It's like, that's how so many think. It's like God's up in heaven and he, he's a little bit cranky and he doesn't really want you to experience all these good things. And so he, he's trying to limit how much fun you can have. And so he came up with the seventh commandment, just because we don't want everything, we don't want people enjoying their life too much. Well, the reality is that this prohibition, that this command is not meant to rob you of joy, but to preserve your joy and to help you live in such a way that you would experience the fullest joy. It doesn't take away something good, it produces or it protects what is truly good. Now, you just stop and think about God's design in marriage, and, and you can see how this subverts it. When we look to God's design, we need to go back to the beginning, Genesis 2. When you read in the Bible, just so you know, there's all kinds of bad things that happen throughout the narratives or stories in the Bible uh, that are not given as examples to follow, and they're not part of God's good design. There's polygamy, uh, there's adultery, there's fornication, there's incest, there, there is all sorts of sinful things that happen in the storyline of Scripture, but just because they're in the storyline of Scripture, God is not saying, hey, this is good. If we want to understand God's good design, we've got to go back to Genesis when God created man and woman, and it's there that we see uh, man and woman in, in uh, the perfect state without sin and without 
corruption that comes. And when we go to Genesis 2, we see several things about marriage. First of all, we see that marriage is of a complementary pair. When God made man, man was alone. And do you remember what God said about Adam when he was alone? He said, it is not good that man should be alone. God had said everything else that he made after he made it. If you read Genesis, he says, and it was good. And it was God saw it and it was good. But when he creates Adam and he hasn't yet created Eve, he looks at Adam and for the first time he says, this is not good. It's not good for man to be alone. And so what does he say? He says, I will make him a helper fitted for him, appropriate for him. And so he created the woman. He created Eve. God in his infinite wisdom created one woman. She was a woman who was like him, but different in, in certain ways. And so he, he created a woman and only one woman. He didn't bring two or three women. Uh, he didn't bring a woman and a man. He brought a, a, a woman, one woman. And, and he said, now this is good. This, this is what it should be. There's a, there's a complementarity to man and woman. And when we stop to think about all forms of sexual sin, we recognize that that is distorted. It contradicts this complementary pair uh, that God designed it. Then we see marriage is for reproduction. When he meets with Adam and Eve and he talks to them, he says, go, be fruitful, and multiply. Now that doesn't mean that if you're infertile or you struggle with infertility or if you're beyond the age of having children that, that you're no longer fulfilling the purpose of marriage, but, but those situations... Uh, should not change the overall design. Part of God's overall design for marriage and his purpose for marriage was to create, uh, to, to create and, and to reproduce. Marriage is the relational context for reproduction. And when we again stop and think about uh, deviation from God's design, any kind of sexual sin, uh, it renders this task either impossible or less than ideal. So when we think about sins like homosexuality, uh, it removes the possibility of reproduction. Only a man and a woman can produce a child. When we think about adultery and fornication, it distorts the purpose of, uh, of reproduction. Uh, obviously, a man or a woman could have uh, a child with someone who is not their, their spouse, but when that occurs, it, it appears that it is always with and always fraught with difficulties and is less than the ideal state for all that are involved. Again, marriage is seen as the relational context that best is suited for the reproduction and the raising of children. Marriage is also for intimacy. God, when he brings Adam and Eve together, he says uh, that they shall no longer be one, but he brought them together and he said, the two shall become one flesh. And that speaks to uh, a union that occurs within the bonds of marriage. There is a, a closeness, there is a, a bondness, a uniting together in intimacy. And adultery and all other sin breaks or distorts that intimacy. When we think about adultery, it extinguishes the sense of intimacy between a man and a woman. Trust is broken and that closeness is threatened, if not even dissolved. And that's why in Scripture, one of the only or one of the few examples or, or uh, sort of uh, allowances 
for divorce is in the case of adultery because that intimacy has been broken. We think about the sin of fornication, that is sex outside of marriage, outside of the covenant of marriage. Fornication enjoys that intimacy that is supposed to be had within a covenant relationship. And there's no true or lasting commitment. The result of serial fornication is that our capacity often for intimacy and closeness is wounded. And then we see one more purpose in marriage. Marriage is to picture the gospel. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us uh, that, that this is to be an example of Christ's love for his church. And so again, sexual sin distorts that purpose for marriage. Fornication tells the story of a God who will love us and leave us, right? He, he, he'll enjoy that intimacy, but then there's no commitment and he's free to move on to someone else. Adultery tells the story of a God who is not faithful and who is not committed and cannot be fully trusted. But within the original design of marriage, a, a permanency, a commitment is there to picture the fact that God is faithful to his people. He loves them with a faithful and a committed love. So when we look at God's design, we, we come to realize then that this commandment is not a threat to our happiness. It's not a restriction against something that is good. Like here's this good thing and God's just saying, no, you, you can't have that. This command is a prohibition that safeguards something that is truly good and beautiful. You cannot have sexual sin and the beauty and goodness of marriage. They're, they're exclusive. Either you're, you're choosing sexual sin or you're having the beauty and goodness of marriage. You cannot have both. Secondly, this morning, we see that this command is broad. This command is not only good, this command is broad. And by that, I mean that it really includes an entire class of sin. The, the command is specifically against adultery. But as we've seen with so many of these other commands, it, it really encapsulates so many other things as well. Christians down through have, uh, throughout history have, have recognized that this command really is a prohibition against all deviations from God's design. It, it prohibits all sexual sin, including some that I've already mentioned, uh, including fornication, homosexuality, pornography, lust, as in, improper sexual desires, divorce without proper grounds, incest, and, and really any other deviation from God's design. And we're not going to take time to come through all the passages to, to demonstrate that, but it is clear that all of those things are sort of lumped together. They, all, they are all of a kind uh, with this sin, and all of them are prohibited in Scripture. Now, again, that's, that is directly against our culture today, which sees all of those things that I just mentioned as permissible, could we say permissible, even passe? It's like, it's no, no big deal. Why would you even be worried about things like that? It's kind of like an appetite and, and you have a desire to, if you have a desire to eat a big juicy hamburger, you, you go eat it and don't feel guilty about it. You enjoy that. It's something that you can enjoy. And so, so many people look at our sexual desires and, and whatever form or fashion they take and they say, it's just an appetite. It's something, it's an urge that you have. Why not just enjoy it? Why not indulge it? But listen, we, we expect that because we have a desire or a proclivity in a certain direction, 
that it's unquestioned that we should fulfill. But listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.13. Because he was writing in the, the, the Roman Empire, and in that context, the views of sexuality were, were very much similar to where we are today. And so this is what he said. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. That was kind of their their motto. Food is made for the stomach. Enjoy it. You know, whatever urges you have, whatever appetites you have, just indulge them. But he says God will destroy both one and the other. And then he goes on to clarify what he's talking about. He says the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Your body belongs to the Lord just because you have an urge or an appetite does not mean that you should indulge it or that it's okay to indulge it. You are meant for the Lord. Thirdly, this morning we see that this command is deep. Not only is the command good, not only is the command broad, but this command is deep. And by that, I mean that it includes not just outward sins, but even the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. As is the case so often with Jesus' teaching, Jesus is not okay with just staying on the superficial level, just staying on the external. But but instead, Jesus, like a laser, penetrates into our heart, and he says, that's where you really need to look. Don't just look at the outside. He does this because, as he teaches in Mark 7, we'll read it in just a second, sin originates within our heart long before it ever produces any fruit in our lives. Sin originates in our hearts long before it ever produces any fruit in our life. Listen to Mark 7, 21. Jesus says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, sensuality, and so forth. He lists many different sins. But but there we see sexual immorality and sensuality, those things come from within our hearts. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person you know adultery or any other sexual sin you, you know it doesn't just magically appear in your life from out of nowhere it, it comes from within your heart and, and for some reason when we talk about this sin in particular one of the things that I notice is that we often like to try to shift the blame to the devil you know l- listen the devil's bad uh, but the devil can't make you do anything right uh, and, and so that's so often sort of the approach that we take specifically with this sin. Well, man, the devil really got me here. The devil really tempted me on, on this one and kind of overpowered me. But listen, the reason that Satan is able to be successful in any temptation against you is because there's already something in your heart that is inclining you in that direction. That's why Satan could not get Jesus to sin. There was nothing. Jesus said, Satan has nothing in me. There's, there's nothing here that would compel me from within to give way to Satan's temptation. But when it comes to us and when it comes to sexual sin, the only reason that Satan is able to tempt us and to overpower us is because there's already something within our hearts inclining us in that direction. That's why James says in James 1.14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see, the temptation comes from your own sinful 
desire. And it's because of this reality, that, that is that sexual sin comes from within us, that Jesus calls us to examine our hearts. You see, it's not simply good enough that you've never had an adulterous affair. Or it's not simply good enough that you aren't currently committing the sin of fornication or, or some other sexual sin. Instead, you need to examine within your heart. So Matthew 5, 27 says this, You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. That's our commandment, isn't it? That's where you've heard it said from the Old Testament law. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, Jesus says, I'm going a step further. I'm going to clarify. Remember, that's one of the things we said Jesus does to the law. He teaches us and instructs us from the law. So he says, I'm going to clarify that. I'm going to help you see all of the implications that perhaps you're missing. He says, I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, sexual sin is deeper than just the external act. If you are routinely thinking about other men or other women, then you have already broken the spirit of this command. You can commit adultery in your heart. What we need to understand is that the external act, as I've already said, never occurs in a vacuum, but it is the product of us nurturing those sinful desires in our heart. And sometimes we nurture them for a long time. Sometimes we're able to restrain that and we can kind of indulge in our mind and in our heart and we think as long as I kind of keep this inside of me, everything's good. As long as I don't act on it, as long as I don't say anything, as long as I don't actually do anything, everything's good. But Jesus says that's not good enough. It's a matter of the heart. The heart, what you have going on in your heart and mind really does matter. And it's because of this that Jesus calls us to go to extreme measures to fight this sin. Again, in Matthew 5, completing that passage I read earlier, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus here is using hyperbole. He's not calling us to literally gouge out our eyes or cut off our hands, but what he is calling us to do is take extreme measures in fighting sin. And I think that's where so often we fail. We're content that we're not externally uh, doing any of these sins, but then we're kind of nurturing them in our hearts and our minds. And Jesus is saying that's not good enough. If you're looking at a woman or a man with lust in your heart, you're already breaking that commandment. You're already sinning. And so you need to take extreme measures to rid your heart and life of those things. Now, again, I just want to point out one of those tensions where, where we are different than the culture. The culture is saying, these sexual desires that you have come from within you. That means that's part of who you are. And since it's part of your identity, who you truly are, because it's coming out of your heart, then you need to indulge them. You you need to do whatever your heart would lead you to do. Whatever urge you feel, that's your identity. Live it out, because it comes from within you. Some Christians have tried to say, no, no, that that stuff doesn't come within. Uh, You know, that, that doesn't come from... Uh, the way God created you, it, it comes from outside of you. But, but Jesus says it comes from within you. But Jesus is exact opposite of that. Jesus says those, those desires do come from within you, 
And they do speak to your identity, but maybe not in the way that you think it is. It speaks to your identity in the fact that it demonstrates that you are indeed a sinner. That's part of our identity as fallen human beings. All of us are sinners. And, and that's why we can have all kinds of inordinate and, and out of place and even out and out wrong desires. Don't listen to the world that says, if it came from within your heart, it must be who you are, therefore indulge it. No, no, no. Jesus says, if it came from your heart, it means you're a sinner and you need to put it to death. That's a very different view than the world. And I think Jesus is right about that. This command is also a wise command. This command is wise, and it's wise because it delivers us from destruction. Our culture is unique from many past cultures. Other times, this sin was tolerated. It was something that could be enjoyable if you kind of got away with it, if you could keep it quiet, just, just kind of keep it in the dark. But today, our culture celebrates it. And, and, and again, the reason they celebrate it is because they say, this is actually the pathway to true human flourishing, to true human happiness. If you want joy in your life, uh, if you want to experience true happiness in this life then give sort of full vent to your sexual desires you know they'll, they'll look at history and say look all these people back here in history they weren't happy and they weren't happy because the culture told them they couldn't express themselves in this way but if you want to have true joy in your life then then just celebrate whatever it is that you have in your heart in terms of sexual desires don't restrict yourself or bad things will happen even psychologically, people, people will commit suicide and they'll kill themselves because they can't, they can't be who they truly are. That's how the narrative goes so often. But again, stark contrast between Scripture and our world. Here's what Scripture says. Scripture says uh, that, that sexual sin, like all other kinds of sin, is actually harmful to you. It's the thing that will harm you. Not, not restraining your sin, but, but giving way to your sin, living out your sin, is actually the thing that will be destructive and harmful. First of all, we need to recognize that, that these sins, and again, this is true of any sin, not just sexual sin, but adultery and all other sin does not deliver what it promises. It says, hey, if you do this, if you fulfill these desires that you have, then you'll be happy. It does not deliver that. It promises satisfaction and happiness and fulfillment, but it delivers none of those things. Sure, there are fleeting pleasures in sin. The Bible says that. There's pleasure in sin for, for a moment. But after that pleasure evaporates as quickly as it came, and what is left there is not true happiness. It is not human flourishing. And worse than not delivering what it promises, this sin actually brings brokenness and destruction. Well, you see, the Bible teaches when we grab the reins away from God and God says, hey, this was my design. This is the way that I created the world. This is the way it's meant to operate. Uh, and when we say, eh, I don't think so, God, I, I would kind of like to go my way and I would kind of like to do things how I want to do them, and I know you design marriage and you design sexuality, but I, I kind of have some different ideas, and, and I want to live that out. When, when we do that, the Bible talks about that as being foolish, and, and one of the things that it makes very clear is when we make foolish decisions like that, our life does not tend to go well. 
This is why the Bible warns us in places like the book of Proverbs when it says there's a way that seems right to a man. And that could be about any number of things, but let's apply it here to sexuality. There's a way that seems right to a man or a woman, but the end thereof is destruction. It leads to death and destruction. And we could see this. You could look at Proverbs chapter 5 or Proverbs chapter 7. We won't go there right now. But, but you could see the destruction that comes about uh, when we sinfully disregard what God says about sexuality. In this life, I don't think that we fully stop to think about all of the damage, all of the destruction, all of the human suffering and carnage that has resulted from our sinful rejection of God's good design in this area. The world just tells us sex is not a big deal. It's two people, two consenting adults, or you know, however you want to mix things up. It's, it's consenting adults, and as long as that's it, then who is harmed? What, what harm comes from it? Well, actually, there's a lot more harm and destruction than you think about. When we talk about issues like abortion and like sexual abuse and like human trafficking and rape and we talk about the, the destruction that broken homes in our society brings and fatherlessness and all of the sort of entailments to that, that the ever-increasing psychological problems that we see all around us, people who are dealing with depression and, and anxiety by, by just the massive percentages of people and so much of that, I would make the case, so much of that really comes back to a rejection of this command. If humanity would simply obey the seventh command, so much evil in this world would be eradicated. So much destruction in our world is directly chargeable to our, to our rejection of God's command here. This command also is condemning it is a condemning command and we just stop and think who among us really is free of sexual sin we talk about and i think in church there's a tendency to talk about how bad the world is especially in terms of sexuality we it's easy to point to all of the extremes in our world and say look how bad the world is but listen, the reality is, and the problem for us, as even as believers, is that we are not immune from this temptation, are we? And, and unfortunately, as we sort of survey the landscape, all too often, we are actually just as guilty as the world is of violating this command. I'm reminded of what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 1. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. So when we sit back and condemn the world for how crazy things are and how, how strange it seems to us, we're, we're passing judgment on ourselves. He says this, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And that is oh so true in the church, is it not? So often we can easily condemn the extremes of this sin in the world. And, and yet if we were honest with ourselves, that all of us are guilty of practicing sexual immorality in one way or another, especially when we think about what Jesus said about in our hearts, right? About when, it, when he said that if you're thinking these things in your heart, that, that you're already committing those sins. That's why we can talk about, again, going back to when we started this series, we talked about what does the law do? 
the, the Ten Commandments, the law has a ministry of condemnation. And this commandment brings condemnation on all of us. It brings condemnation on me. It's certainly effective in this regard. But it gets even worse than that. This command is personal. Adultery uh, demonstrates really the personal nature of our sin against God. So we sort of probe even deeper into this condemnation. It, It isn't merely an impersonal matter, is it? Well, God made this standard or pattern, and we didn't really live up to his pattern, so we've sinned against him. No, this sin, and all sin really, is much more personal than that. It is actually a personal rejection of God. This is why God in Scripture chooses adultery as one of the preeminent pictures of sin. When we talk about sin, uh, God chooses adultery as one of the primary pictures of what sin really is. So you could look to a book like Hosea. We did that on Sunday night here not too long ago. Hosea 3.1 says this, And the Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. This is Hosea the prophet, and he's calling him to do this. And then he says, Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. What he's saying here is that you, my people, when you run to other gods, when you run off into your sin, it's like, it's like you're committing adultery. It's like you're running out on the Lord. It's like you're being unfaithful to him. And so it helps us see uh, that this is, is really a, a bit deeper. Our sin is deeper than we really understand. We were created to to be in an exclusive relationship with the Lord. And when we say, no, I don't think so. I I don't want to do what you want me to do. I I want to live life my own way. It it isn't only failing in an impersonal way to live up to God's pattern. It's a rejection of God himself. God, I don't want you. I I, I don't want to be faithful to you. I, I want these other things instead. This is why in the book of James chapter 4, and you could look all throughout Scripture to see this analogy between adultery and sin. But listen to what James says in James 4, 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Do you see how he calls their sin adultery? He's saying you're to be devoted to God. You're to be committed and faithful to the Lord. But instead, you're choosing to reject God. You're going away from God, and you're choosing to live a life of sin, a life that fits into the pattern of this world. When we embrace the world's thinking about sex, it is an act of violating this covenant relationship that we have with God. This command is not only condemning, though this command is redeemed. What we need to understand is that Christ brings forgiveness. Aren't you thankful this morning that Christ brings forgiveness and he also brings transformation? We just got to say, as I jump into this, that, that historically the church at times has treated this sin differently. Maybe some of you are old enough or you were raised in a certain context to know what I'm talking about. This sin was sort of like maybe a little worse than, than others. This sin was, was kind of really uh, one that would mark you for a long time. Now, the problem in past generations is not that they treated sin too seriously. We, we need to take sin seriously. Like, that's not the problem. That wasn't the, the issue. The, the problem was 
that they treated this sin almost as worse than other sins. Almost as if it really wasn't, wasn't pardonable. It was like the unpardonable sin. Now, I doubt you would have found anybody who, who said that or who articulated that, but, but no doubt that was the prevailing attitude toward those who committed such sin. There, there were sort of some sins that were kind of respectable sins and, and that they could kind of be overlooked or even if they weren't overlooked, they were easily forgiven and, and moved past. But this sin was something different. People who were guilty of this sin in, in any form were sort of forever condemned. And what we need to understand this morning, even as we stand under the condemnation of the law, we need to be clear that this is sin, that it is wrong. There's, there's no ambiguity about it. We don't need to lessen the seriousness of this sin. But even as we do that, we need to recognize this very important truth. God's people are not those who are free of sexual sin, but those who are forgiven of sexual sin. God's people are not those who are free of sexual sin. And that's kind of the attitude was everybody had to present themselves hypocritically. Like, I've never sinned in that way. Like, I might lie a little bit or maybe I've been dishonest here, but I've never committed sexual sin because it was worse. But that's not the reality. The truth is that God's people are not those who are free of sexual sin, but those who are forgiven of sexual sin. Just think about what Scripture teaches. Think about some of the great people in the Bible who are the people of God, David being the, the chief example of that, right? And when we look to the life of David, what do we see? A man who is a sexual sinner. We see someone who fell short of God's law, of God's standard, of, of God's ideal. And yet the Bible says that he was a man after God's own heart. And David himself, after committing sexual sin and falling into that sin, he, he cries out to God in Psalm 51, and this is what he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. David didn't try to hide it hypocritically or act like he had never sinned. He recognized that he was a sexual sinner as well as all kinds of other sin. And he cried out to God, forgive me, Lord, wash me of this sin. We see Jesus coming to this earth. He wasn't someone who distanced himself from sexual sinners. Like, oh, wait, I was here to forgive a lot of people, but now that one, that's a little too far. You can't find forgiveness for that. In fact, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, many of them had that attitude, like that was kind of the scarlet letter sin. That was the one that kind of, you need to stay over there, you're unclean, impure, you know, we're not going to have anything to do with you. But one of the things that they said about Jesus when he came is that, why, why is he a friend of sinners? He, he comes and he eats with tax collectors and with prostitutes, sexual sinners. Any decent person wouldn't eat with people like that. Jesus, at one point, when one of those former prostitutes came and, and anointed Jesus' feet with oil in an act of worship to him, uh, and, and the people are saying, well, if, she, if he knew what kind of woman that was, she's a sexual sinner. If, if he knew, he would get away from her. But Jesus says about her, whoever has been forgiven much loves much. There is forgiveness for this. And we see this in 1 Corinthians as well in the early church where, where the Lord says, or Apostle Paul says, 
prostitute to those, and he mentions all kinds of sins, including a whole host of sexual sins, and he says to them, and such were some of you. The Corinthian church was full of former sexual sinners. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You know what it means to be justified, don't you? It means that though you're a sinner, God has taken your sin, including your sexual sin, and he, he transferred that, in a sense, to his son Jesus Christ, who then died on the cross so that your sins could be forgiven, so that they could be washed away. But that's not the end of the story. He took the righteousness of Jesus Christ, all of the good, all of the obedience of Jesus, and he attributed it to you. He counted it to you as your righteousness so that when you stand before God, if you believe in Christ and you put your faith and trust in him, God does not see your sexual sin. God, God has passed over it. He has forgotten it. The Bible says it's as if he's buried it in the depths of the ocean. He's cast it behind his back. He no longer sees you as a sexual sinner. He sees you as perfect in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be justified. And that's why Paul can say to these people, you, you used to be these things. You used to be uh, those who practice homosexuality. You used to be fornicators. You used to be adulterers. But now you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's people are no longer condemned by this command. But what we need to understand is that it continues to instruct us. Listen, this morning, just if you've embraced Christ and you found forgiveness and your sins have been forgiven and you're counted righteous in Jesus Christ, praise the Lord. But, but let us not sin that grace may abound. As God's people, this commandment continues to urge us forth to, to, practice, uh, to practice holiness in our life, to, to, to turn away from sexual immorality and to live for the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And there he's talking to believers. He's talking to those who have been justified. But he's saying now, as those who have been accepted, as those who have been justified by the Lord, this is God's will for you now. He wants to sanctify you. That is actually make you holy. And he wants you, in particular, to abstain from sexual immorality. As we close this morning, I think there's three responses to this passage. There are three responses. First, if you have a history of sexual sin, but you have come to Christ, celebrate the forgiveness you have. I, I just know that so often, in, with this sin in particular, when there's a history of it there, it, it continues to bring shame for some people. Some, some are able to embrace this forgiveness and, and praise the Lord. Others, it continues to weigh them down. It continues to be a guilt. But listen, if you are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation. You need to put that baggage down. You need to put that weight down and embrace the fact that you have been forgiven in Christ fully and finally. If God does not condemn you for your past sin, why would you continue to condemn yourself? Two, if you're a professing Christian and you have continued to live a life of unrepentant sexual sin, you need to stop deceiving yourself. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you would abstain from sexual immorality. 
You need to be honest about the true condition of your heart. And you need to be honest with yourself and with other people. The only thing that happens by you continuing to hide your sin is that you remain enslaved to it. You need to bring it to the light. You need to confess it to the Lord. And you need to find some faithful and, and responsible person that you can trust within the church. And you need to confess that to them and ask them to pray with you and to hold you accountable. Three, if you recognize your sin this morning and you've never experienced the forgiveness of God through Christ Jesus, then I would invite you this morning to turn from your sins. That's what the gospel says. We, we see there's condemnation. The law points out that we've sinned and we've, we've fallen short of what God demands. And we recognize I can't be right with God based on what I do. And so we turn from our sins and we put our faith and trust completely in Jesus. And the Bible says that whoever believes in him is not condemned. I would urge you to do that this morning. If you recognize I've sinned, I've fallen short of this command. Believe in Christ. Trust in him and find the forgiveness that he offers. We're going to close in a word of prayer uh, this portion of our service, and I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward and, and Daniel uh, to lead us. We're going to observe the Lord's table this morning. But as I pray this morning, if that's the condition of your heart, I would urge you to pray as well. Pray along with me and ask the Lord to bring forgiveness to you and to give you the power to overcome this sin. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray this morning for anyone who is here who does not know Christ, who has not experienced the sweet forgiveness and, and the sweet release that comes from knowing that we are no longer condemned for our sins. I pray that you would give them the grace through your spirit to turn from their sins this morning and believe in Christ. And we pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.